I stared in awe at the Lincoln Memorial. If Honest Abe had come to life and somehow managed to lift his bony, 23-foot, 4-inch frame from his throne, what would he say? What would he do? Would he break dance? Would he pitch pennies against the curbside? Would he read the paper and see that the union he saved was now a dysfunctional plutocracy? That the people he freed were now slaves to rhythm, rap, and predatory lending? And that today his skill set would be better suited to the basketball court than the White House? There, he could catch the rock on the break, pull up for a bearded three-pointer, hold the pose, and talk shit as the ball popped the net. The great emancipator. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. You're looking uh, very bearded. You have your winter face blanket on. I do. Yes, I. I uh, it just. I keep thinking maybe I'll shave it, but it's. It's not hot in LA. You know, it's uh-huh. like maybe it'll get up to sixty-five in a given day. Mm. So it's cool enough for a beard. And I always just get kind of fascinated every few years, which is like. Has my beard finally thickened into adult beard <laughs> yet? Because I've always had a very patchy beard. It's uh, kind of looking like it. It is. Yeah, I think you could. There are a yeah. few, there are a few yeah, little gaps a, here and there. There's a few but patches. There's a few but, little you know, patches. Yeah. I mean, that's nothing you can't fill in with a sharpie. Yeah. Just. I think I've done that before. Or like. I'm sure you have. <laughs> like, like, yeah, like some night, like I have a date, and I just like yeah. fill in. Just, just for men. Fuck off. Yeah. <laughs> the Sharpie. I think I actually think I used one of these gel pens, like, like what I'm holding up right now, but a black, you know, like a... Um, You're like, like painstakingly blacking in every hair. Like just you draw like 10 little hairs, you know, so, be, so mm-hmm. as opposed to... Because if I just made the whole thing black, that would look fake, right? That would look so odd, you yeah. have to You have yeah. to let a little bit of skin show through, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I grow a beard every now and then. It doesn't... It doesn't... It, it's a weird version of me, um, hmm. but uh, it, I, think it, I think it suits you. You kind of got like a you got like a crew neck sweater on right now. You're looking uh, you're looking very fisherly. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'll I'll take that. I'll take that. Yeah, I went out. Um, I had a little bit of gap of a gap today, and I went out and uh, to my and surfed, even though the surf wasn't great. You know, basically mm-hmm. caught like two waves, and there is a sort of like a fun sort of rugged like standing on a sunny day but it's like 50 degrees and windy and standing there with your aviators and your beard like staring out at the surf and i'm like yeah this is a good life yeah 18 year old me would have appreciated jesse at you know 40 40 x years old but uh yeah shall we talk the sellout we're back to books back to books (laughs) it's fun movies were fun movies were fun how was your adjustment of being back to books i was a little like Oh my God, I have to like think hard about this. I mean, I actually kind of missed reading a book, uh, having mm-hmm. a book going for Upper Middle Brow to the point where I actually read Ringworld again. Uh, <laughs> and, and, then I, and then I started Amazing. reading The Moat in God's Eye. Just just because it's like I, I always have a book going. And uh-huh. for the past year, often that book has been the Upper Middle Brow book. So that was good. I mean, I, I, this, this will be interesting because I feel like, I don't know, but I do know that this type of book, it, it is probably the kind of book that, that where you and I differ the most in terms of I, our I, taste. I've been thinking about that too. <laughs> Without going into too much detail, this was a challenging book for me. Uh-huh. Um, and I, you know, I, I feel grateful for the challenge. I'm glad I took it on. I'm not bitter about reading the book. But it, um, it, this is not a book that I really find 
most of the time pleasurable to read. Mm. Uh, although there are moments, um, yeah. moments of biting satire, even as I admire it as I'm yeah. reading it. Um, so it's hard to say in terms of the transition. I, I'm very happy to be reading books again. And I have ambivalence about the book that yeah. I'm looking forward to discussing. Yeah, me too. I, I, I sort of felt that as as I was reading it, I was kind of like, oh, I think this is going to be one where like, I'm like, isn't this great? Yeah. <laughs> and, and like, and you're like, I have some reservations, which is really understandable too, I think. It's interesting because there are certain, there are certain ways in which my taste and your taste align mm-hmm. very closely. Right, yeah. like think about Sideways or The Forever oh, yeah. War or um, Snow Crash even. Or even, not only did we both like The Intuitionist, but we both mm-hmm. had the same slight disappointment with the ending of The Intuitionist yeah. too, right? So it's even, we. but this is, I, I just from what I have seen, this book is more likely to polarize us than yeah. than Yeah, other I think books. so too, which is, which is good. That's, it's yeah. good to have uh, some stuff like that. But yeah. Uh, yeah, we are talking about Paul Beatty's 2015 novel, uh, The Sellout, uh, which also won the Booker Prize. Uh, so yeah, we're yeah. in uh, we're in we're in big award land. We're we're definitely upper here. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, we are we are very much upper. Um, but yeah, we follow the action of a nameless narrator, uh, often referred to as Me. Uh, he also has a pet name, Bon Bon, uh, from his. Married girlfriend Marpessa yeah, calls sort of that. on and again, off again girlfriend. Although I, I have a hard time sort of parsing the plot uh, with regard to her too. But yeah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, but we open in the Supreme Court where he is being arraigned on charges of he has engaged in slavery. He smokes a pipe in the in the Supreme Court courtroom, uh, which definitely makes me think: Are we in some non? non-realistic setting for sure yeah and the uh the one black justice who is very close to a real world uh black justice until he starts talking (laughs) correct uh did you even catch the little moment of the italian justice yes yes i did (laughs) that made me laugh so we don't we don't quite know exactly what's going on uh this fits in the grand tradition of we start at the end and we know, and we're sort of working our way towards that scene in the courtroom. Uh, we rewind to our narrator's childhood in the farms district of a city called Dickens in southeast LA, where the narrator is being brought up by his father, who is a liberation psychologist, <laughs> uh, who conducts all sorts of social science experiments on his son. One of them involves him assaulting his son the narrator wondering if the bystander effect will come into play in dickens where people will just sort of watch this horrible thing going on uh hoping it will not right because his hypothesis is that black people are a caring people and will not be so callous (laughs) and he is correct that uh the bystander effect does not happen uh but he forgets to account for what is called the bandwagon effect and several other people uh, join in in beating our narrator <laughs> alongside his father. Yeah, and then I will pass it over to you for the next uh, the next plot point. Yeah, he does really, really 
unethical and child abuse versions of like the Milgram experiment. I want to say like the Stanford prison experiment, although I don't remember if that one, but, and you know, the upshot of it is he is abusing his son, the nameless narrator, Mm -hmm. um, sort of in the name of a kind of exploring black liberation. Pretty early, we learned that the father is killed by the police. Um, He got in an argument over a, a traffic issue. Um, and then pretty quickly, um, the the father always had kind of a hobby farm in the backyard and also kind of put his son to work managing that farm. And so that when the narrator comes of age, he finds that he can make a living farming his special. He grows a lot of things, but his specialties are cuboid and other specially shaped watermelons uh, and really good marijuana. And we get the sense that that's enough for this character in this, you know, not fully enumerated world to survive, to make Mm -hmm. his living, to get by. Um, Around this time, Hominy, who is an elder black man living in the neighborhood, I think like the one famous person from this uh, neighborhood, um, starts living with him on the farm or spending time with him on the farm. He is one of the members of the Little Rascals TV show um, from the 1930s. Yeah, so you have this detail in here. Uh, This neighborhood that they live in is called Dickens, but Dickens is no longer on the map. So his source of income was was fans of Hominy coming and finding him and, uh, you know, maybe paying him for an autograph. But he has fallen on hard times because they can't find him anymore because Dickens is no longer on the map. Uh, But narrator basically feeds him, takes care of his basic needs, and Hominy demands that the narrator enslave him. Um, (laughs) And enslaving him means taking care of his basic needs. He's also, Hominy is always speaking in a kind of exaggerated racist black dialect, which Mm -hmm. we learn that Hominy is very intelligent and can speak in other dialects, but seems to be choosing to speak that way as kind of part of this fantasy of being enslaved. There's a general theme of masochism around Mm -hmm. Hominy. Hominy likes to be beaten he likes to be treated in a racist way. We later learn that he wants to be segregated. Um, and the narrator, I guess, feels obligated to kind of take care of Hominy and fulfill his wish of enslaving him. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, I'll let you take it from there. Yeah, the narrator kind of grew up spending time at Hominy's house with the rest of the neighborhood kids watching uh, reruns of The Little Rascals. And so that's why the narrator feels kind of indebted to him. Uh, And the narrator was the last of the neighborhood kids to kind of hang out with Hominy. Um, And the narrator has also taken on the Dickens role that his father played. Um, We are going to have to insert a little thing in here uh, about a content warning. It is going to be a little hard to talk about this book without using the N-word throughout. We are going to do our best. Uh, But his father was sort of known as the N-word whisperer for basically keeping people in the neighborhood from killing themselves. And the narrator has kind of taken on that role after his father's death and has saved Hominy from killing himself. So perhaps that's another connection for why he wants to take care of him. Um, Or killing themselves or basically somebody who's gone off their rocker and is about to do something very dangerous and destructive, whether it's kill themselves or kill somebody else or like, you know, get a baby off of a bridge, throw a baby off a bridge, get in a shootout with the cops, whatever it might be. 
um, the narrator and his dad specialize in sort of soothing these people, calming them down, and and getting them to to uh, come back into the peaceful fold. Yeah, partly because of Hominy's plight. Our narrator decides that he is going to try to kind of reincorporate Dickens and bring it back. Uh, and this starts, uh, he and Hominy set up a traffic sign um, in the middle of the night, like a perfect green highway traffic sign announcing an exit for Dickens. They redraw a border for the town with like a field painting roller. And then uh, the narrator announces this plan to the Dumb uh, Dumb Donuts intellectuals. <laughs> A, a local think tank that the narrator's father opened. The current head of the Dum Dum Donuts intellectuals, uh, Foy, tells him to back off. But another member, a gangster named King Cuz, encourages our narrator to kind of keep going. Hominy's birthday approaches. And the narrator enlists his girlfriend, Marpessa, to do something nice for Hominy, which turns out uh, the the narrator's girlfriend, Marpessa, is a city bus driver. And they recreate a segregated city bus. And Hominy waits patiently on it for a white person to get on so that he can surrender his seat to uh, the white bus rider. Of course, no white person is going to get on on this particular bus route. So the narrator hires an actor to play a white woman that Hominy can surrender his seat to. Uh, and then they, and then they take the bus on a wild party up to Malibu, um, uh, along with, I think like the entire staff of a Jack in the box across from the Malibu pier. I think also it's probably worth saying that Dickens, the reason Dickens has been wiped off the map is attributed to some kind of gentrification slash real estate reordering, renaming Mm -hmm. of things. Although I don't think a bunch of affluent people have showed up in Mm -hmm. Dickens. Um, And I don't even, and in fact, I think to the degree that there's been demographic change, it has shifted from predominantly black to predominantly Mexican American. Mm -hmm. But there still is this sense that Dickens has been taken away by the forces of real estate, by the forces of capitalism, by the forces of racism. A little bit confusing exactly which or how um, and what the ultimate effect has been. But there does seem to be a some sort of, even in the the moment of segregating the bus, I think it's Marpessa or somebody reports that perhaps people are, are starting to kind of coalesce around the idea of Dickens as a community a little bit like it does we do sense a little bit of narrative momentum in this direction of perhaps our narrators kind of mischievous and not very well planned or particularly strategic attempts to bring Dickens back might be gaining a little bit of momentum by halfway through the book um, the narrator tries to find a sister city for Dickens in, and it's a kind of, to me, this, this moment is just a big, long joke. Um, but Dickens is turned down by Chernobyl, Kinshasa oh. and Juarez, <laughs> all for reasons relating to say, in the case of Chernobyl, the environmental devastation in Kinshasa, the poverty and Juarez, um, is it the race, the crime, right? It's crime, uh, crime yeah, and violence. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So each of these cities that are known for these things reject, uh, um, uh, Dickens, um, for essentially the thing that they are known for. Um, the narrator in one of the last chapters we read, uh, demonstrates a calf castration for career day. Is it his sister who is the school teacher? I kind of sort of lose track. 
Yeah, there's so I mean, like that's one of the things that I think we'll talk about. There are there are some moments of like cloudy action. Like like what's happening here? And that that's one I also sort of lost track of whether that was a sister or not. Girlfriend or yes, yeah. somebody he knows is a teacher at the school. So for career day, he's a farmer, so he demonstrates the castration of a calf as a way of getting the kids' attention. And there's one student who who is very excited. Uh, and, it, you know, rather gruesome scene. And that more or less gets us to the end of our section. Yeah, I mean, I think that our recap is probably as confusing and freewheeling as, as the book kind of intends to be. Um, this is This is not... This is not a book for the faint of heart. You really need to come into this with your faculties kind of ready to go because Paul Beatty certainly doesn't condescend to you in any way. And you kind of have to like be on your game. Uh, It is lively and dense. Um, It's ironic. It's elusive. It's spiraling. It's a lot. Disturbing, too. I mean, there, there's there are many depictions of violence. There's a lot of racist language. I mean, and I think the racist language is generally employed in an anti-racist context. But also, you know, the narrator and the characters speak in a way that is it's not uh, it's not cleaned up. You know, right. um, yeah, there, there's not just racist language, but also a lot of swearing um, it, and no punches are pulled. Yeah. Um, it, there is a lot of, there's a lot of critical energy in the book yeah. and a lot of, um, a lot of satire in the book as well. Or, or um, there's a lot of anger, I guess I yeah. would say in the book, whether, whether the, the, the writer is intending anger, the characters experience a lot of anger and hurt and bitterness and that those emotions soak the book. Yeah, I think we could we could flip back to our conversations about tone and Jonathan Swift. And I mean, th- this exists very powerfully in the tradition of Jonathan Swift, mm-hmm. of, you know, attempting to write social and racial wrongs through satire and irony. Yeah, yeah. And um, I wanted to kick things off with a, a reading from early, early in the book. And the, the reason I picked this passage is because it gives us a sense of where we are. It's not so like, it's not so hard to track that it's going to not work in just a quick little reading. Um, and this is a description of Washington, D.C. Uh, and mm. and our, our narrator is from um, Los Angeles, so he has come a long way for this. Washington, D.C., with its wide streets, confounding roundabouts, marble statues, Doric columns, and domes, is supposed to feel like ancient Rome. That is, if the streets of ancient Rome were lined with homeless black people, bombsmithing dogs, tour buses, and cherry blossoms. Yesterday afternoon, like some sandal-shod Ethiop from the sticks of the darkest of the Los Angeles jungles, I ventured from the hotel and joined the hajj of blue-jeaned yokels that paraded slowly and patriotically past the empire's historic landmarks. I stared in awe at the Lincoln Memorial. If Honest Abe had come to life and somehow managed to lift his bony, 23-foot, 4-inch frame from his throne, what would he say? What would he do? Would he break dance? Would he pitch pennies against the curbside? Would he read the paper and see that the union he saved was now a dysfunctional plutocracy? That the people he freed were now slaves to rhythm, rap, and predatory lending? And that today his skill set would be better suited to the basketball court than the White House? There he could catch the rock on the break, 
pull up for a bearded three-pointer, hold the pose, and talk shit as the ball popped the net. The great emancipator. You can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. God damn, that's some writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. 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 Oh my god. Um, and it doesn't I mean, really let up. Do you know do you know like it, it it's like that level of density, that level of illusion, that level level of humor, and that level of sort of surrealism too, yeah. where you're not yeah. even really sure what's happening. Um yeah. because because the sentence spirals into this into this kind of collect you know suddenly we're 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 thinking about abraham lincoln playing basketball you know um and (laughs) how does that what does that have to do with dc you know (laughs) sort of easy to lose um you know why did you want to start with that reading i mean I, i thought it was a good way to get a taste of the prose yeah um and you're right like that that level of writing is on all the time it just never flags from that level of energy, which is kind of amazing and is part of the reason why this book is difficult. Like you, this is not a sit down in front of the fire and casually leaf through the sellout. Uh, you you kind of have to have your your game on to do this. And the reason I really grabbed it, that last sentence, you can't, you can't stop him. You can only hope to contain him. Yeah. A brief search of where that phrase came from led me down a list of, Oh, it's definitely the Incredible Hulk. No, it's definitely about Wilt Chamberlain. No, it's definitely about Michael Jordan. No, that was on the movie poster for The Blob. Uh, And when we start talking about The Blob, then we're also talking about communism Hmm. and we're talking about domino theory. And the reason I grabbed this is like, this is the level that you kind of have to operate at with this book. And you will be lucky, I think, if you pick up half of the illusions as you cruise through this i'm sure there are ones that i am just that i don't get and i don't have the cultural kind of attachment to it but i just i really i love the rhythm of it 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 sits in this tradition of of like 19th century books where like a narrator sort of goes on a a grand trek you know like like lawrence stern novels and things like that Um, And that's the other thing Paul Beatty is doing is he's appropriating these like pretty white manners of of narration from from earlier eras Mm -hmm. and then like setting it in Washington, D.C., which itself is like a parody of a European city. Um, And so I picked this one because I thought that it was like fairly easy reading for this book, but does a really nice job of collecting of sort of showing what this book is going to be like. Um, it's, it's like the early parts of a video game where you're kind of learning the ropes. Yeah. 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 And, and, and I, I'll have to say, like, I remember reading that the first time and I was really enjoying the first 10 pages or so, Uh but then I expected that at some point that level of density and that level of illusion and that level of, um, whimsy would sort of slow down a little bit and 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 there would be more attention to action and and i suppose it did um but um i'm I'm not yeah i'm not i'm not really it didn't to the degree that i expected yeah reading reading this book is somewhat like being assaulted by a 16 lane highway interesting say more about that it just it it's it's dense. It never stops. It right, continues. Right, it's right. loud. It's energetic. It, there's a lot. There's chaos and order at the same time. 
it's dangerous. <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's just, yeah, it never really, um, I'm glad you said it feels kind of surreal. Cause like, I also wanted to set up my first question. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you were only allowed the three options that I put on the rundown, um, of, is this magical realism <sighs> where, you know, like magical things happen in the narration and they may or may not be real. Is this speculative fiction? Is this an entirely reinvented landscape like the United, like, um, like what happens to the U S in infinite jest? Um, or is this surrealism? Like, is this the taking two things that can't exist to each with each other and putting them in the same place? Like what, what does this book feel like to you out of those three options? I hate that you gave me those three options because I, 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 I'm going to cheat and say I think it's absurdism. I think it's, okay. I think it's D, absurdism. Um, of those three, I think surrealism is the closest. But to me, surrealism would be like Hominy waking up one day and he's white. You know, uh-huh. and okay. it, would, it would be literally an impossible. Like Gregor Sampson wakes up and he's a bug. Exactly, exactly. Okay. Or like the narrator's house comes alive and starts eating <laughs> or Ooh. or it doesn't I don't think it's speculative fiction because I think it is the world we live in pretty the what to me what's and I don't think it's magical realism because I haven't seen a lot of magic. What what to me what is ratcheted up is the absurdity of the character's behavior. Uh-huh. Um so it's to me the characters exist in this world and the degree of racism I don't think is particularly exaggerated. Maybe it's exaggerated in certain moments, but I think it's more or less, you know, the forces at work on the narrator are the forces we encounter. I don't think that DC is represented as like, you know, even worse than it is today, Mm -hmm. like 20 years in the future, sort of like Infinite Jest, where it's like, it's recognizably our world, except for now, corporation sponsors years, you know, like Year of Glad, Year of the Depend. It's not that kind of thing. What, to me, what is bizarre is that the characters behave in ways that are, they're exaggerated to the point of impossibility. Um, You know, like, like, like the, the, he would not, nobody would smoke marijuana in the Supreme Court. And if they did, they would immediately be escorted out of the court. Um, uh, the narrator's father would not, would, the, would not be allowed to get away with doing electrocute these. Electrocute his yeah, electrocute child for his getting son. questions wrong. Yeah, it's, it's, and, you know, I actually looked this up because I was like, is this based on something? Has anybody, are there examples of, you know, a psychologist doing kind of abusive experiments on a child? And sure, child abuse exists, but there, that level and that degree is exaggerated. How many, I'm, yes, there are sadists out there. And there are characters who are probably, you know, black movie stars who feel guilty about the kind of racist depictions they were hired to engage in to make a living. But his degree of whatever it is, guilt, masochism, there's a real kink, but it's turned up to 13. Exactly. It's turned up to (laughs) S11. And everybody, whatever, it's kind of like what Justin was saying about Roald Dahl's characterization, which is like whatever the character is... Foy, um, what's his, do you remember Foy's last name? What's his, uh, it's like Foy Christian, Foy Cheshire? Foy Cheshire, right, exactly. Right. Foy like, Cheshire. <laughs> right, wait, which I think something like maybe an allusion to the Cheshire cat. I suspect there's probably some, 
you know, friendly black weatherman who has a PBS show in L.A. who he's an allusion to, you know, named like, you know, uh, Francis Cheshire or something. Yeah. And, you know, like he's probably a direct allusion. But his particular version of kind of obsequious white black power intellectualism is cranked up to 13 like he kind of reminds me of people like that but it's all being exaggerated so to me it's mm -hmm. a, it's absurdism in that yeah. sense as opposed to surrealism nice yeah i could see that yeah like like things are so bonkers like the only recourse is is laughter yeah i think this is farce Okay. Um, and yeah. although the my other, as I was reading it, and I was really, I started to not enjoy it. When we got into the, the first chapter, I was okay with. I was like, okay, this is the big epic chapter. It's surreal or it's it's absurd, but whatever. I'm, you know, it kind of reminded me of the first chapter of Infinite Jest, where you're like, totally. this is really yes. weird. But yeah. what's going to happen is the book's going to create a relatively naturalistic explanation for this. And as I got into the first chapter, I started to suspect, oh, the book is its just going to stay this weird. And I was kind of really bothered by that. But to keep myself going, the, the, the genre I came up with is this is an epic poem. This is an oh, absurdist yeah. epic poem. And because the language is poetic and it has oh God, and, yeah. and it has the beauty of poetry and it also calling it an absurdist epic poem allowed me to enjoy it more than I was enjoying it because that gave me permission to just enjoy the language mm -hmm. and the digression without worrying so much about how it all yeah. fit together and whether it fit together in a satisfying way, which I'm not sure it does. I think that's a really good way to look at it because the, the epic... Like epic poetry is basically a behavior guide for young men. Mm. Like that's what epics are supposed to do. Like that's what they, that was their original intent is like, here's a big story about dudes doing the right thing. You should do the right thing. Kill Grendel, kill his mom, kill the dragon. <laughs> kill then the you're dragon. a man, then die. Yep. yep. Get on the boat. We'll set you on fire. And yeah, and I think that what Paul Beatty is after is that sort of like, I mean, the, the satire is so biting where it's like, this is a behavior manual for, you know, like what it's like to experience this level of racism in America. Yeah. Um, and uh, it is, it, it, the, the tone of the book is angry. I like, I like that way of kind of looking at it because it really does make it a little simpler to walk through. Um, that nailed my follow-up question. What's your question about the neighborhood? Why is the neighborhood called Dickens? Oof, boy, um, I was sort of worried that this was going to be a thing. <laughs> <laughs> your text alluded to your having thought about this to some. Yeah, of course. Like yeah. you know, I mean, and, and and I was I was like. I was like, oh, yeah, we could call this like faintly Dickensian, which itself is a joke that requires knowledge of like mid-Atlantic small universities. Um, and I, I mean, so, okay, we know that we've got a Dickens illusion when he brings the map to the Dum Dum Donuts intellectuals group. Uh, this little like zoning map of Dickens, what's on the inside and what's on the outside. And one of the things that's on the inside is the worst of times. And one of the things that's on the outside is the best I, of I times. I missed that. That's really good. It's, <laughs> it's, you're right, it's so, the book is so dense that there are yeah. wonderful moments like that that probably go by the first time. Oh, it's so good. It's yeah. like, is it an actual connection to Charles Dickens? I, I think yes. 
the structure of the book is similar to a Dickens novel in that we're following kind of a singular narrator through trials and tribulations. Beginning with childhood um, and going into yes. adulthood. Yep, exactly. The names are sort of over the top, just like you would expect in Dickens' novel. He's an orphan. He loses his father, yep. which is a common... Common trope. Every Dickens novel does the character lose his father? I'm not sure. Probably. Or becomes estranged from his father or something like that. Dickens must have had like a like a badass side role, like side life as a D and D player, um, because like you got to get you got to get rid of those parents. You you can't yeah. Yeah. can't let the DM have anything over you. I I I I am tentatively saying that yes, it is a connection to Charles Dickens, um, but I am worried that uh, I'm worried that I'm wrong. That that's too barefaced an illusion. Well, uh, so, I mean, what are the options, right? I mean, the options you've enumerated, one option is he is saying this is a Dickensian novel. Um, yeah. Like, you know, I just read Barbara Kingsolver's Demon Copperhead, which is clearly a Dickensian novel. The Diamond Age, which we read about mm-hmm. a year ago, is clearly a Dickensian novel. Um, the Goldfinch, Donna Tartt, is clearly a Dickensian novel. And, and all three are consciously so. So that's that's option one. Option two is that the the worst of times, the best of times, he's saying something about the nature of poverty because Dickens mm-hmm. is the great 19th century narrator of poverty. Um, yeah. That's what he was known for. There's also a lot of references to Mark Twain, too. You know, Dickens' contemporary. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, Paul Beatty is nothing if not erudite. So those are two options. Is there, I mean, yeah. is there a third option that we're not thinking of here? The third option is the one that you're never supposed to do, which is that it doesn't mean anything. Yeah, red herring you know, or, or yeah. nothing at all. It's just a name. Right. And and if you were to, it would be really weird to settle on a name with that sort of level of connotation and and not have somebody be like so are you sure you want to do this and be like oh yeah that was totally absent-minded but leave it in leave it in yeah it's fine yeah it's fine i mean what's weirdo is that like those three that i just gave you demon copperhead the goldfinch the diamond age this is first of all this novel is not that long like dickensian mm-hmm. novels are usually long yeah. And secondly, the thing that this novel does not have that those novels do have, I think to me, a real feature of a Dickensian novel is the narrator, particularly as a child, experiences a series of parental figures, all of whom have different strengths and weaknesses. Yeah. You know, so like David Copperfield has, I forget the name of the family that takes him in. They are kind, but they are poor. You know, and they can't really look after him. And then at a certain point, he finds his grandmother and she is harsh, but she is wealthy. And she also she's harsh, but she's fair and takes mm-hmm. relatively good care. And then it's the football coach who's who becomes the oh, adopted amazing. father uh, who's an addict, um, who is generally understood as good hearted, but kind of emotionally unavailable. And then you mm-hmm. also have a couple of terrible step parents in there and terrible foster parents. And often the pattern I feel like in a Dickensian is like good parental figure, bad parental figure, good parental figure, bad parental figure. And I'm not really seeing this. I'm just like the dad sucks. The dad's gone. <laughs> yeah. Then he's grown up. So yeah. so I'm not really seeing the connection to a Dickensian novel, even though 
Maybe there are other aspects of a Dickensian novel that, uh, I mean, certainly the the coming from poverty. Yeah, the, the courtroom scene, mm. like that's got like a real sort of like overblown um, kind of profundity to it that has like the same sort of feeling of like any of the courtroom scenes in Bleak House or any time that, mm. that uh, mm-hmm. Dickens novel heads into a, a courtroom. Yeah. Okay, and then I mean there is Hominy is kind of a parental figure too, but but I don't know it just doesn't it uh, so yeah I, I I don't it to me it feels a little mysterious still mm-hmm. um, yeah and I think there's a lot about this book that's a little mysterious yeah. there is for all of its density it um, it there are parts of it that kind of hang out in an abstraction that is sometimes pleasant and sometimes dislocating. There was like a, there was like a section where he was talking about Marpessa and I could not for the life of me figure out if we were in flashback or real time. Yeah. And there's a few moments like that where you just, and I think it's, I think it's probably more me than him um, where I just, where like the thread is so intricate. Yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I mean, I'll just put my cards on the table right now, which because I feel like we're building to this and we have other things we want to say, but I can't tell if I am outclassed by this novel, if I am not culturally... That's one possibility. Like, its complexities are just too much for me. Two, I'm not outclassed by it intellectually, but I'm not culturally competent to fully understand it. Mm -hmm. Or B or C, is it kind of a brilliant mess? Is it a is it an assemblage of brilliant moments suffering from the lack of a real master plan? Mm-hmm. And I think it's tricky because it won a Booker Award, and also because of because I'm a white man and this is a black writer. It, it's it my concluding that it's a brilliant mess could just be my own inability or even discomfort with the subject yeah. matter. Or it could be a brilliant mess. And, and and I also think, like, well, I also think, like, I'm not interested on Upper Middle Brow. Like, this is our fun podcast and we enjoy books. But honesty is really, really important to me, yeah. you know. And I refuse to pretend to enjoy something. or Yeah, yeah. And I refuse to pretend to get something that I don't actually get. I think that's yeah. counterproductive, too. Um, so that's what I'm struggling with halfway into this Book. Yeah, I think I think all of those things are possible and plausible and they all could be true. Mm. Like there are moments where I feel deeply outclassed where I'm like, boo, <laughs> like this is this is this is very good. This is very smart. Um, clearly, he's read, you know, everything. And um, and then, yeah, there are times where it feels like it is a beautiful mess. And then. And then I would guess, given the level of intelligence that's behind this, I think that is probably intentional. Hmm. And I would guess that he is maybe trolling us a little bit. Maybe. <laughs> um, I think that that is, is probably something else that's going on here. Yeah, I, I, have a, I have a reading that I picked just for like the beauty of the prose. So maybe we can, uh, maybe we can sort of luxuriate in that. Yeah, yeah. Before you do that, I will just note I've, there's definitely a pattern where if we both identify a potential weakness 
you are more likely to suspect that it is intentional on the author's uh-huh. part, <laughs> and I am yeah. more likely to be skeptical of that and think, you know, maybe they're just not perfect, <laughs> and yeah. and maybe it's just not quite fully realized. Yeah, uh, yeah, which I think is I think it's fair. I think that's yeah. good that we both that we have those two uh, those two leanings, um, and and the reason I land on on the intentional one here is like I'm just I'm blown away by this dude's intellect. It's yeah, it's really impressive. So uh, this reading is um, from the period they're on the segregated bus. And uh, Marpessa has just figured out that the narrator has hired uh, this actress to I almost, play I almost the white woman. I almost this reading, actually, too. This was one of my favorite moments. What's your name? Marpessa asked as she cajoled the bus northbound onto Las Mesas. Laura Jane? Well, Laura Jane, I don't know how you know this fertilizer-smelling fool right here, but I hope you like to party. Unlike... Those expensive, staid, day-trip excursions to Catalina Island. The impromptu four-wheel birthday party cruise up the Pacific Coast Highway was free and jumping like a motherfucker. Our highway next to the ocean liner had all the amenities. Open bar, stomped-on aluminum can, whisk-broom shuffleboard, casino gambling, which consisted of pitching pennies, dominoes, a coin-flip game called Get Like Me, and a disco lounge. Captain Marpessa womaned the helm, drinking and cursing like a pissed-off pirate. I filled in as first mate, purser, deckhand, bartender, and DJ. We'd picked up some more passengers on the way when the bus pulled into the jack-in-the-box drive through across the street from Malibu Pier, cranking Houdini's five minutes of funk. And when we ordered 50 tacos and a shitload of sauce, the entire night shift quit on the spot and climbed aboard, aprons, paper hats, and all. If I had pen and paper and the bus had a bathroom, I would have posted another sign. All employees must wash their hands and their minds before returning to their lives. After nightfalls, once past Pepperdine University, where the highway narrows into a two-lane hill that stretches like a skate ramp to the stars, there isn't much light. Just the occasional flash of oncoming high beams and, if you're lucky, a lonely bonfire on the sand and the sheets of moonlight give the Pacific Ocean a glassy, black, obsidian sheen. It was on this same stretch of winding road that I first courted Marpessa. I bust her on the cheek. She didn't flinch, which I interpreted as a good sign. One thing I love about that section, too, is purely random, which is that in the last month, I've driven that exact stretch of road several times. Mm-hmm. And, and it's gorgeous and it's glorious. Yeah. I know exactly I know exactly what he's talking about. There are all these little coves because what happens at that climb after Pepperdine is you sort of go up on a series of bluffs and the Pacific is down below. And then there are all these little neighborhoods and beaches you can kind of park and walk down into. And uh, it's really fun. Um, it is. It's 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 great writing. There was also, as I read this the first time, there was a part of me that's like, he just can't help himself. Like, you know, like we're supposed <laughs> yeah, to be totally. driving the plot forward, but he literally has to take the bus off route and take the novel off route and send it up the Pacific Coast Highway to Malibu. Stop at Jack and Box, get some tacos and some other party people, get drunk, get high and wax romantic about Marpessa, too. Yeah. He just yeah, can't help it. He can't. Like, it's, it's great. And I mean, like, 
you know, the novel, like we need, we need an upbeat, right? This novel is a lot of downbeats. My goodness. (laughs) And even this upbeat has elements of downbeat in it because the entire upbeat savors of anticlimax. Like it, it just, you know, it's like any of those parties that never quite hit the level that you were hoping it's going to hit. And, and desperate fun, right? Yeah. Like it started as fulfilling Hominy's fantasy of being half, have to give up his seat for a white woman. That's that they're doing this as a treat to him on his like weird masochistic kink about being treated in very racist, painful ways. Yeah. Um, and then there, and even when Marpessa says, I hope you like to party or whatever it is, you know, I don't know how you met this fertilizer smelling fool, but I hope you like to party. It, there's this sense of just like, She's kind of exasperated. There's a real sense of fuck it. We're taking this bus yeah. to Malibu. And, yeah, they like uh, flood the bus. Yeah. Like the dispatcher keeps being like, "Where are you?" <laughs> and like, um, and I mean, yeah, and even Hominy, like the next paragraph, like although the bus cruise was bumping, Hominy had spent most of the ride standing in the middle of the dance floor, stubbornly holding on to the overhead bar and, by proxy, the history of American discrimination. <laughs> Yeah. Like he's just he's so like he's so desperate to keep that like that thing going. Yeah. Um and I mean he's like he's he's the whole reason they're here is yeah. like to play through this, you know, cosplay of like a terrible part of American history. Um and he's trying to keep it going while the everybody else is like, fuck it, let's get high and go swimming. Yeah, yeah. And and it's also in that moment too. It seems like none of these and this 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 part I don't know this part gives me mixed feelings because the narrator and it seems like none of the characters can ever forget their place in the racial order mm-hmm. which which can be a it, which is an oppressive feeling you know like there's these lovely moments where the narrator goes surfing and those are the moments where I kind of like him the most cuz he's surfing and he's surfing places I I surf and his descriptions of you know paddling out in the rain and mm-hmm. I kind of relate to him there's this sort of the only little wholesome moments in the story and then he he has all these encounters that basically like whenever he comes to shore and anybody sees him he always has an encounter with a kind of like vaguely friendly but still racial racially conscious white person like at one point i even think they're sort of like hello black surfer (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah, nice to see somebody of your complexion out here in malibu you know and 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 it's like he can't he can't have an experience of just being a surfer a person right you know and even if even if the white person is not being mean or racist there's always this overlay of race on his experience yeah i mean that's exhausting the first line of the book this may be hard to believe coming from a black man but i've never stolen anything you could put this may be hard to believe coming from a black man but in front of just about every sentence in this book do you know what i mean like yeah like there that that phrase is it it that is the subtext of just about everything that we hear and it is i don't know it's like i was saying earlier that i'm not sure if there's a coherent structure to this book but i i think so far i think it was our our discussion of um the cook the thief his wife mm-hmm. and your lover when you said uh this book is about something the way that a cat is about a house and i yeah. kind of feel like this book is the same way it it to me there is a plot, but it's mostly just digression, illusion, 
satire, exaggeration, figurative language, which all gives you the sense of being black in America today. Yeah. It's like if you took like Jonathan Swift and then like pick like a hardcore postmodern writer and, and, you know, like stuffed them together, you know, and that's where we're at because yeah, it doesn't have much of a traditional manner of unfolding um, because I don't think that's what it's trying to do. It has, it sort of has a bigger project. It's a series of set pieces. Yeah. And it, it, it lacks so far, maybe we'll mm-hmm. get this, but so far to me, what it lacks is the moment where Swift says, now some might say that we should actually like feed and clothe the poor and educate right. them and give to me. It, it lacks, it knows what it's angry at. Yeah. I don't know that it knows what it likes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's one I put this in our little note from the rundown where I'm like, I'm having trouble saying anything about this book that isn't already contained in like the readings. Yeah. And, you know, like perhaps I moved past some of those moments, but there's there's so there's so much good. <laughs> there's so much excellent writing and like deep illusion. Um that it's hard. It's hard to keep track of the moments when the plot sort of pokes its head up out of all of the rest of it, which I really enjoy. Like I really enjoy this kind of collage of illusion and tone and satire. Um, Like I really dig it. Um, But I also understand there are moments where I'm in reading it. I was like, I don't know what the plot is here. Like we seem to be spending quite a bit of time with this character named Hominy. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And again, you know, I think we've enumerated this. I don't know if that's my problem or Paul Beatty's problem. Yeah. And, and I, and the jury, you know, and, and who am I to judge? Right. But like, well, let me, let me give you my reading. Yeah. And, and then I think that will be my final thought. And I have, maybe have a final thought to come off that, yeah. too. So this is from one of the Dum Dum uh, Donut Intellectuals uh, meetings. I don't think it's the first one. Um, this is after uh, the narrator's father has died. And I th- this is the one where uh, the narrator shows up and says he's going to bring Dickens back. But this is prior to that. There's other business going on. And mm. so what happens is Foy Cheshire, who's this kind of like pretty successful local black television sort of impresario type, who's very much committed to advancing black causes, but in a way the narrator finds very annoying. I think partly because it has a, a an element of kind of black respectability politics, but then also in part because I think the narrator feels like it's more concerned with the surface of things than the essence of things. And that, that's what this reading is going to get at. And so, so Foy addresses all the other dum-dum uh, donut intellectuals. By the way, there is a, a chain donut shop in Southern California called Yum Yum Donuts. I'm not sure. Oh, if you know okay. That. That's got to be. That's yeah. 100%. But, but also, I mean, you know, uh, Paul Beatty and the narrator not resisting the opportunity to poke a little bit at the dumb, dumb donut intellectuals as well. He's holding up uh, uh, Huckleberry Finn, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn. <laughs> he says, he held one aloft addressing his audience in an affected Southern Methodist drawl even though he was from the Hollywood Hills by way of Grand Rapids. One night, not long ago, Foy said, I tried to read this book, Huckleberry Finn, to my grandchildren. But I couldn't get past page six 
because the book was fraught with the N-word. And although they are the deepest thinking, combat-ready 8- and 10-year-olds I know, I knew my babies were not ready to comprehend Huckleberry Finn on its own merits. That's why I took the liberty to rewrite Mark Twain's masterpiece. Where the repugnant N-word occurs, I replaced it with warrior, and the word slave with dark-skinned volunteer. (laughs) That's right, shout the crowd. I also improved Jim's diction, rejiggered the plot line a bit, and retitled the book The Pejorative Free Adventures and Intellectual and Spiritual Journeys of African-American Jim and his young protege, white brother Huckleberry Finn, as they go in search of the lost black family unit. Then, Foy held up the copy of his revamped volume for examination. My eyesight isn't the best, but I could have sworn the cover featured Huckleberry Finn piloting the raft down the mighty Mississippi while Captain African-American Jim stood at the helm, hands on narrow hips, sporting a cheesy goatee and a tartan Burberry sport coat exactly like the one Foy happened to be wearing. It's so fun. (laughs) It is. It's so fun. His satirical knives are so sharp. Oh, my God. It's so good. (laughs) There's not a dull knife in his satirical kitchen. I mean, I feel like Paul Beatty just can't help himself because later we get some other titles of Foy doctored books, including, Uh uh, what were they? Um... Oh, Uncle Tom's condo. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And and I mean, you know, I think I think I understand the satire here in this case. This and you know, and this is one of those matters that I think is in, is is tricky for white people because this is really an argument within the black community about how best to, you know, liberate or advance the cause mm-hmm. of black people, and it's not it's not something I feel comfortable weighing in on. But I, I also think it's probably interesting for everybody else to sort of know that this debate exists. Yeah. Um, and I don't know, you know, is Paul Beatty, does he have the exact same attitude and tone as his narrator? I don't know. Um, I, I think he, I think maybe this would be one of my critiques of the book is that, because the narrator also is sort of the butt of satire, I think. It's yeah. sort of like everybody is. So the satire sort of bursts forth in this book like a like a fire hose, just sort of spraying down everything in sight. And I do feel like that leaves me sort of wondering maybe what what might be, what the tone of the book might suggest is positive and good. Mm-hmm. And worthy of striving for, um, I don't. I don't see much of a glimmer of that right now, other than maybe something embodied by bringing Dickens back. Mm-hmm. Um, but I find that a little bit confusing. But I do think you know he is. If if you assume that Paul Beatty agrees with his narrator here uh, about the absurdity of Foy, and I think so because Foy Cheshire is rendered so ridiculous in this moment. Yeah. You know, there's this sort of debate about should we read Huckleberry Finn even though it has racist language, or should we protect our children from it? It's it's mm-hmm. kind of a generational thing right now it also relates to the use of the n-word and and you know should that word be excised from the record you know or or should it be confronted in its various contexts so it could be understood and i think if we assume i think most people would give mark twain credit 
for the message of the adventures of Huckleberry Finn being ultimately Mm anti-racist in that Huck Finn, as I recall, his growth as a character comes in his moment, the moment where he decides he's going to help Jim escape slavery, even though he knows, I think he says, even though I know I'm going to hell. You know, but but what we might take is even though he knows he's going against the dictates of the structures of his society, which is moral, moral courage. And if yeah. that if that is the, the growth of Huck, the white protagonist, that is a kind of growth towards anti-racism. And so even when the racist language appears in that book, one senses that it is it is being used by if it's if it's Huck, if he's an unreliable narrator, mm-hmm. um, that it's being used critically. Uh, that yeah. the author intends a sort of criticism of the racism in, in in the book, even if it is uncomfortable and maybe there are some racist attitudes that sort of creep in in the depiction of Jim too. So, so that's an interesting debate, and I'm sympathetic, I think, to what Paul Beatty is saying about it. Um, but I also, you know, at the one hand, I love the satire, but on the other hand, I find myself, I, you know, there's, there's also, I find myself sort of want, wanting somebody to stand up for the Foy Cheshires of the world, you know, mm-hmm. from, from that, for that point of view. I, fe- I feel like, I feel like there's a lot of anger here mm-hmm. and maybe not a lot of, a, a lot of, what's the opposite, a, a lot of, a lot of wholesomeness a lot of mm-hmm. i don't know that there is a, a a a social good that is being articulated that we should be pointing our bow at i i and, only feel like i'm getting a sense of what we should avoid if that makes sense well and that might be the point mm-hmm. you know like the point might be that in these particular circumstances uh social goods are not possible um there's this moment where um the narrator is describing them listening to uh, Al Green's Love and Happiness. I don't have the exact moment or the reading queued up, but the sense that you get is that concepts like love and happiness are concepts that are only accessible within the bounds of like an Al Green song, Mm. that they remain a fantasy for this particular like socioeconomic like realm. Mm. And so I think it's possible that that might be the point that there isn't a social good available Hmm. in probably the next page or two, uh, the narrator is left and he's talking to King cuz and he Hmm. asks King cuz like, why do you go to these meetings? And King cuz says, it used to be, I'd go to listen to your father, rest in peace. That guy ran deep for sure. But now I go, just in case these dumb, dumb Edwards get the notion to actually set foot in the hood, blowing the spot up and all. That way I can at least give the homies some Paul Revere-like advance notice. One if by Land Cruiser, two if by C-Class Mercedes. So good. The bougies are coming. The bougies bougies are coming. (laughs) And like, you get the tensions. Like, Like, people are... Like people are sort of doing the best they can in the ways that they have. Yeah. Um, but due to the like structures that they're involved in, like there's not much that they can do except struggle with each other. Hmm. And that's, I think that's a big part of the, the what's going on here, but maybe more of that will be revealed in the second half of the book. It's unclear to me whether there is a, a positive direction he is advocating and maybe that is not something that a book is required 
to have. Mm-hmm. I, I definitely feel like it's something when I'm reading satire, I look for it. You know, I think I saw it in Parable of the Sower. I think I saw it in The Intuitionist. I think I even saw it in um, the fifth season, um, which which all deal with sort of similar themes um, and have similar allegories. So I'm not saying that, you know, every book needs to have a positive message, but that is... I'm curious if something like that will develop. And I think I will enjoy the book more if it does, if I find that it does have something that feels coherent to me to say. Yeah. But it's also possible that it does and I'm just missing it because I'm too thick. (laughs) Well, I think, you know, compared, like put up against the power of Paul Beatty's um, brain, I think all of us are probably a little thick. Yeah, yeah. You know, so like, it's the it's you know we're in we're in the same problems of Jennifer Egan or David Foster Wallace or people like that yeah. who are just so smart and like David Foster Wallace was the same way like he couldn't help himself in some yeah. set pieces yeah. where he was just like I just I have to put this in it's too funny to me yeah and you know and I I hear you like the world is terrible enough and. It is sometimes the realm of fiction to give us a break from that. And a lot of the time, I would prefer my world of fiction to give me a break from that. And I can understand that and still respect and admire the books that are angry enough that they want to take the terribleness of the world and extend it and amplify it so maybe a few more people we'll see how terrible things are. Yeah, that does make sense. And I think that even if I don't end up enjoying the book overall, I think I will be enriched by it. Yeah. Even if it's hard to get through it. Let's go to trivia. Okay. Um, So uh, several A-list child actors auditioned mm. for The Little Rascals, oh but God. didn't even get a callback. Yeah. Which of these three actors did not audition for The Little Rascals in the oh 1930s? God. Was it really was, the 1930s? Yeah, yeah. I went and like looked. There is a lot of Little Rascals. Was um, it like a radio show before it was a television, it's like, a television show? A lot of TV. I mean, there was stuff in th- up through the fifties. Like it, there was there's a lot of little rascals out there. When did television? I thought I thought there wasn't really television until the 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 like fifties or the maybe late they 40s were like maybe they were like they, theater theater shorts or I could see them as yeah like, they could be like little reels that you'd see before the main the main yeah, event the main show something or, like that or radio little rascals. Okay, wow. So they must have like the actors must have grown up and. Uh-huh. and yeah, and they must yeah, have had a lot like of... new, new little rascals at any given yes. moment. Yeah, the the article parsed all the the list of actors that have taken part in the Little Rascals is long. Oh. <laughs> it's pretty it's pretty amazing. They they replaced cast members. They you know so like you know. So when Hominy is talking about random little rascals I'd never heard of before, that that could be accurate. That's not. Oh yeah, Dar- Darla Darla Hood is, is a real actor. Hmm. Like, um, and uh, most of the ones that he he talks about are all real. Wow, wow, yeah. Um, so you're picking the actor, the A-list child actor who did not, who did not. audition for the Little Rascals. All right. Was it A. Judy Garland, B. Shirley Temple. 
or C, Mickey Rooney? It goes back to the 1930s, huh? Judy Garland, Shirley Temple. I'm trying to get this based on, like, what I know about... Well, okay, so here I'm going to guess Shirley Temple. And my logic is that I think she was already famous as a child actor and therefore would not have had to audition... Whereas I believe those other two, even if they were child actors, their fame came later in their career. So that I could see them, the Little Rascals would be sort of like somebody being like a Mickey Mouse kid today. Like it, I could see that yeah. as a training ground. So I'm going to guess Shirley Temple was the one who did not. That is great reasoning, but it was Judy Garland who did not audition for the Little Rascals. Both Shirley Temple and Mickey Rooney auditioned and didn't get called back. Which was probably a good thing for both of them. Yeah, I think it was probably probably beneficial. They turned out, um, they turned out okay. Wow, wow. So I wonder was I wonder if there was ever a radio version of Little like yeah, a lot I'm of the early TV that. shows. I think there was a Honeymooners radio show before there was, um, and there was a. Um, I saw you know I don't know if you watched the uh, Lucy sort of biopic with um, Nicole Kidman recently, but there was a uh, I Love Lucy live radio stage show before the the tv show too mm. so a lot of things started out as radio um okay so um as you pointed out one of the ways the narrator makes his living as a farmer is by selling different shaped watermelons including i believe jesus shaped watermelons at christmas and easter um, but often square watermelons, and mm-hmm. I was con- I was curious about that, and it turns out, sure enough, square watermelons are a thing, yep. um, and they are actually quite common in a particular country. Uh, so which of these countries is the country that is most noted uh, for having cube-shaped watermelons widely available for sale at, you know, quite often i'm not saying you couldn't get them anywhere else but there's one whenever you look it up there's one country where they're like oh yeah they're everywhere here uh is it a japan b india c egypt or d the planet new caledonia (laughs) i was waiting for it um as you were reading the question i was my brain was just like japan 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 uh so i'm gonna go japan how did you know? I mean, you're correct, but had you, had you heard that or does it just figure somehow? I don't know. Like maybe I did hear it or something like that. Yeah. And, and I'm worried that my rationale will quickly drift into like sort of ethnic or racial profiling of, um, but like, you know, one, like Japan is a small country with a gigantic population. Right. Um, and they are also, you know, Japan is also very well known for being very efficient with like storage and spaces True. and things being like clean and well organized. You only have so much space for watermelons in the fridge. Right. There's like there's a huge <laughs> waste of space. You don't, you don't have room for an ovoid in your in your know, refrigerator. Um, fruits. Yeah, unless you could somehow grow whatever the negative space of an ovoid inside a cube <laughs> that you then put. It's like weird three dimensional. Dimensional mesh melon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. 
Yeah, this is a melon designed to fit next to us, a spheroid watermelon or a <laughs> ovoid watermelon. Yeah. Um, well, and I think the other thing about Japan is that is that uh, squ- uh, cube watermelons are largely considered decorative, and mm. um, they can be quite expensive because they're kind of huh. hard to grow. And of all of those countries, Japan is by far the wealthiest in terms of capita per capita income. So people have a little more more Japanese people would have money to spend on a cube watermelon than you would find in those other places. Well, everybody, thanks for hanging out with us tonight and uh, reading along with Paul Beatty's The Sellout. Next up, you will hear part two. Uh, Remember, we're back to two episodes per book of Paul Beatty's The Sellout is what is coming up next. Upper Middle Brow is a small print production. Chris Bag and Jesse Dukes are the urban farmers, and neither of us are enslaved, fortunately. Uh, it's a terrible joke, but Paul Beatty started it. Music yep. by Ben Pajak and Jesse Dukes. Design and website by Chris Bag. You can learn more about us and find our listener survey at UpperMiddleBrow.com. And please review us in your podcast app so other people can find the show. And as a reminder, Jesse and I are both writers and editors, and we can help you with your writing, podcasting, or editing project. You can see some more of our portfolios and learn more at our respective websites, chrisbag.com and jessedukes.com.